Our scripture lesson this morning came from Paul's letter to Timothy. It's found in the third chapter and reading the 14th through to the 16th verse. 1 Timothy, the third chapter, the 14th through the 16th verse. And we find these words recorded in our scripture. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The former professor of Princeton University, B.B. Warfield, in his call for churches to take the instructions of the Apostle Paul seriously, stated, there is a right way to order God's house. No, there is a way in which it must be ordered. Is the church still God's house? The church of the living God. It is the latter part of his statement that really caught my attention. It is a question for which I ask all of us here today. Is the church still God's house? Is the church still the church of the living God? Many of us might venture to say, yes, it is. But I caution you to not be so quick to answer in the affirmative. I would argue if that any of you used to attend, attend church as a child, you can admit that the church you grew up in yes, is a lot different from the church you attend today. Yes, the point is something is very different about how we regard the household of faith and the way that the church is seen today. I've often stated that one of the things I love about the Roman Catholic Church is that despite the years of church history, despite all of the challenges that they faced as a major denomination, they never lost sight of the holiness of God. It does not matter what time of day you walk into the sanctuary of a Roman Catholic church or even an Anglican church for that matter or an Episcopal church, you can always get the sense that God is revered, that God is holy, and that the things of God are sacred. Yeah, yeah. So today I want to talk about our church. And with that I want to discuss our conduct in and outside of the four walls of the building. I've therefore titled this message, The Mystery of Godliness. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord, for the household of faith. Lord, the church is not a building. It's the people who come to the building. And so, Father, how we conduct ourselves, whether we are assembled as the saints of God, 
or whether we have spread out through the world, we represent a Savior who died, who shed his precious blood so that we may be credible witnesses to his kingdom and to his truth. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in the text, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And so, Father, teach us today, not with eloquent and vain words, but, Lord, with the kind of words that will prick our own spirits and bring us to the knowledge and awareness that not only greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, but that, in fact, we carry this treasure in earthen vessels. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are not our own, that at the moment of our confession of faith that we were bought with a price. And so, Father, it was costly for us to be saved. It was costly for us to be able to come boldly to your throne. It was costly for us to be able to rise every time we fall. So may we not take it for granted that your precious blood was shed. So Spirit of the living God, help us to see beyond our own needs, cares, and our own concerns and to be able to treasure this wonderful gift of grace that you have bestowed upon each and every one of us. Open up our spiritual eyes today that we may see clearly how wonderful you really are. We thank you, we praise you, and we honor you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. Paul begins his letter to Timothy with a salutation. And in that salutation, he stated that the goals of his instruction to every believer is that they will serve, watch this, with love from a pure heart, with a good conscience, and with a sincere faith. That's what Paul says the goal of writing his letter to Timothy was, that we as Christians will serve from a love of a pure heart, with a good conscience and with a sincere faith. To serve with love from a pure heart means that you serve from a place where you understand that your heart is who and what you really are. It is a place of your secret thoughts and the feelings, the place where nobody knows what's going on but you and God. It is from the heart that all the issues of life flows. And since what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, then if you harbor evil thoughts, if you harbor thoughts of murder and adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander, etc., 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 then these things which will defile you flows out of you and then it becomes difficult to serve with love in the church. Yes, sir. Yes, you cannot love the people of God effectively if you aim to serve with an impure heart. Well, well, well. Secondly, to serve with a good conscience yeah. means that if your mind dwells on immoral things, then your conscience will be defiled. Now, I want you to understand this is a different level of defilement than the one I spoke of before. Before, I spoke of you defiling your body. But now we're talking about defiling your spirit. 
Titus 1 and 15 says this, Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. We're often plagued in our minds with thoughts of regret, guilt, and shame. And far too often this becomes our reason for serving in the house of God. We do this as if trying to serve God's people will limit the suffering of self-condemnation and guilt that we feel, but that does not work. You cannot, nor should you attempt to serve God's people in the church because you are trying to free yourself from guilt. You must serve with a good and clean conscience which can only come with having first been set free by Jesus Christ. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. We come sometimes to the house of God. We want to do good in the house of God. And we believe that if we give and we serve and we do all these wonderful things for the saints of God, that somehow it becomes a record of right that makes us feel like the wrongs that we do are not so bad. You cannot cancel the ledger simply by what you seek to do that you think is good in the house of God. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. So the truth of the matter is, when you come to the house of God to serve, it should not be out of obligation or guilt because what will happen is the saints will know. And when the saints feel anything other than the love of God through your service, it would be better if you never had served at all. The final thing that Paul says In his letter to Timothy, he says to serve with a sincere faith. So before, it was to love from a pure heart. It was to serve with a good conscience. But now Paul is saying to serve with a sincere faith. And this is critically important for all of those who call themselves believers in the house of God. The implication here, as Paul was talking to, writing his letter to Timothy, which would then go to the Ephesian church, the implication of a sincere faith means that sometimes we in the church serve with ulterior motives. It is the proverbial pretending to have a form of godliness when in fact our hearts are very far from God. Church folk have a tendency to to make profound pronunciations about how good and faithful God is when things are going quite well in their lives. But the moment calamity strikes, we're all left wondering what happened to that faith you had. Lip service is all too common and all too easy to give in the house of God. And it is the principal reason why non-believers, many non-believers, stay away. Our faith has become too wishy-washy and the slightest adversity is all it takes to knock us off of our faulty foundation. I'm talking to your spirits. Because for where this church is getting ready to go and for what God is getting ready to do with us, there are certain things, certain devils that need to be killed and crushed once and for all. Because the truth is, if you want more from God, you have to let go a lot of things that you like. So Paul says we must serve with love from a pure heart. 
serve with a good conscience and to serve with a sincere faith. In other words, sincere faith is what's going to make you give up the things that you enjoy so much in order to achieve the things that you cannot see. Why? Because faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that you cannot nor have you seen. So therefore, God is requiring you to say, trust me. And you can only trust God if you've had experiences with God and if you've ever been in a place where you needed God more than you needed your drugs or your alcohol or your lascivious lifestyle, whatever it is. If you've ever been in a place where you needed God and God showed up for you, then you now have a testimony on which to stand. As it relates to how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, Paul further makes the argument that believers must stand in an objective relationship with God. Your and my, our professed faith promises us mercy and peace from God. But mercy and peace are not primarily just emotions or things to make us feel good. They are based on the fact that believers ought to have a genuine and a real relationship with God. As believers here in church, we do not just feel peaceful. We are actually at peace with God. Peace and security evolve only from a relationship where there is trust. But despite that wonderful grace of God, Paul also chooses to remind us of the true nature of the church. He says it's the household of the living God, a God who is not dead, but alive and active, who will protect his church and punish those who comes against it. The truth, the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, must be protected. Now, let me be very clear here. The preservation of the gospel is not dependent upon how much the church performs its function because the gospel can never be destroyed. But the role of protection of the church is one where we become credible witnesses to what God has done. How you protect the gospel is by how you live your life. People outside are looking at us who call ourselves church folk and they are making, they are making assessments about whether or not the church and what the church professes is true, not because of, not by how much people are in here or how well the worship team sings, but how you live when you're outside of the four walls. That's how you protect the gospel. Not by coming and making us have a wonderful, beautiful building, a new roof. That is wonderful. That's a byproduct of our faith. But where the rubber hits the road is how you live outside. And that's how you protect the gospel. And Jesus Christ, he died and gave us the right to be stewards over the gospel. That's what we're missing in the church. God will build his church. God will provide for his church. God will defend his church. So God does not need us to do anything for his church. But God wants us to be his church. And by being his church, 
You and I have a responsibility to be credible witnesses to the greatness of God through his church. I'm talking about a mindset here. I'm talking about how you actually live your life day to day. The church is suffering in the world. The church doesn't have a voice in the world because the very voices that should be talking about the church, people are seeing talk out of two sides of their mouth. On the one hand, we stand for righteousness. And on the other hand, we stand for everything else once it's able to line our pockets. I'm not casting aspersion on nobody. It's not what I do. I ain't nobody's judge. But for me... We're talking about holiness and godliness. I'm often reminded that uh, when I go to somebody's wedding, you never see a preacher or the officiant, I've not seen it anyway, in jeans and sneakers when the bride is all decked out and the groom are all decked out. They want to see the officiant looking a certain way. So they want you to look a certain way. And so I say to myself, well, every worship service is a wedding celebration. Every time you come to the house of the Lord, it's a wedding feast that you've been invited to. And I question myself when folks walk into the house of the Lord any old kind of way. I'm talking about a mindset here. And somehow in our society, there seems to be a shift in how people recognize and deal with the holiness of God. I mentioned before that the church you grew up in probably looks a lot different than the church you worship in today. The difference between the church you grew up in and the church of the day is really nothing more. Hear me, church, nothing more. It's not the way people dress so much. It's none of that. I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every pastor in every church needs to put on a robe. So they should. I'm just saying that they ought to. You can do whatever you want in your house. But what I'm saying is that the difference between a lot of churches today, the church you grew up in, and the church that we are in today, simply is because there is a lack of testimony and sustaining credible witness. That's what's wrong with the church of today. That's the difference. It's not the mode of dress. We can get distracted by the clothes. We can get distracted by the music. But when the testimonies have been compromised and the witness is no longer credible, it's something other than the church of God. I don't know if you're hearing me. When our grandparents and parents would tell us how they overcame adversity by faith, their testimony was true, and it became for us a reason to want to not only share in their testimony, but to enjoy our own testimonies of God as well. God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the only thing that has really changed is that we either don't know him or we have not told anyone about him. And who can blame you? Who can blame you? How can you tell someone about someone whom you don't know? This is a tragedy of the church today. Many people would think that I was going to talk about mode of dress. No, I'm talking to your spirit. I'm talking about a mindset. What has God done for you since you have proclaimed him as God? And who have you shared it with? Yeah. 
I get excited telling people about the God I serve. I get excited about telling people, listen, we've shared this testimony, my wife and I. We've shared this testimony from the moment I left Verizon. We are, there's no way that we should still be living in the house we live in. And that was almost, what, 19 years ago. 10 years. 10 years ago. It feels like 19. 10 years ago. What's my point, church? Is that I have a testimony. We have a testimony. And we can share the testimony because if God did it for us, he can do it for you. This is the tragedy of the church today. Our lives are lived without power of the gospel. And because it's only tradition, not faith, that brings many of us to church on Sunday. Now, now to emphasize the greatness of the gospel and the greatness of the church's mission, Paul actually, in the text we read, cites a hymn. Paul cites a hymn, and it's a hymn that was very familiar to the Ephesian church. And, and, and the thing about it is, the hymn actually describes first the work of Christ, his incarnation, resurrection, and his subsequent ascension. Then it describes the ensuing obligation of the church to preach the gospel so people will believe and so Christ will receive the glory he deserves. Let me show you the text again. Watch carefully what the Apostle Paul does and says. Now, the old church, the old church grew up on hymns, right, Sister Kennelly? They didn't necessarily have an organ. They didn't necessarily have drums, but they had the old hymns. And I'm telling you, as much as I like some of the contemporary stuff, they can't do for me the same things that hymns do. And so as a generation, and as we look at handing over to the next generation, we better give them some hymns in addition to all the other stuff that they're getting. Because what's going to take them through is going to be their ability to connect to a part of their spirits where God himself speaks. So Paul says this to Timothy. And I went through all of that because I want you to understand the context of Paul's letter. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But just in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Watch this. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What is this truth that Paul is talking about? You hear what he said? To support the truth. In other words, the way we conduct ourselves support the truth. Do you understand that? How we live our lives support the truth. He's talking about being credible witnesses. Support the truth. And what is that truth? Watch this. By common confession, which means we're all on the same page, all on one accord. Great is the mystery of godliness. What is that mystery, Paul? He says, he... This is the hymn, who was revealed in the flesh. I don't know the tune, but he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We don't write like that anymore, the songs of the church. Now, I don't want to get lost in the exegetical minutiae of this hymn. We could read it and we could interpret it in many different ways. But suffice to say, I want to just pull out a few things that I want you to see. Because I want you to see that the central purpose is that the gospel is about Christ. And it is the mystery that has been revealed. While there are many ways you can interpret this hymn, here are the basic thoughts. It said, he who was revealed in the flesh, which means through the incarnation, Jesus expressed his humanity and led an earthly life. He felt what you and I felt. He understood disappointment. He understood betrayal. He understood pain. He understood remorse. He understood abandonment, grief, loss, all the while not turning to his godness to find relief. He was the word made flesh and he dwelt among us. So the first part of the hymn is simply saying that he who was revealed in the flesh was now what? Vindicated in spirit, which means by the Holy Spirit he was affirmed at his baptism, proven victorious at his resurrection when he conquered death, hell, and the grave. In other words, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit. Then it goes on to say he was seen by angels. He who said that he was and all that the scriptures foretold. Old Testament, even what was written at the time, New Testament, proved that his witness was credible. He was right about what he said. Then it said he was proclaimed among the nations. No other figure in human history on earth has been preached more than Jesus Christ. He was preached by the disciples before the resurrection, and he was preached by the disciples after the resurrection, and he's being preached today by pastors, ministers, and evangelists even right now. He was believed on in the world. And as a result of this foolishness that we call preaching, this foolishness that we believe that we can stand in a pulpit and speak words that's going to transform lives. This foolishness of preaching has caused many to come to know who he is. The gospel is being proclaimed throughout the world and many are coming to the faith because of this witness. And finally, it says, the hymn says, he was taken up in glory which means he ascended into heaven, was victorious. And even right now, he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he commands a whole host of the company of heaven to fight on your and my behalf on those who will yet call upon his name. So Paul is saying, Timothy, 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 I hope to come to you, but I just might be delayed. But in the event that I am delayed, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of the God. Because it is the church of the living God. The place where the spirit of God dwells. And the way you conduct yourself, you will hold up this pillar of truth that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is that bright and morning star. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the alpha 
and he is the Omega. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the great I am. And my brothers and my sisters, whether you understand it, believe it or not, he is coming again. What will he find when he comes? The faith that you and I profess was costly. And hear me now, brothers and sisters. Paul uses all six of these stanzas to let us know that the mystery of godliness is tied to the nature, character, and the work of Jesus Christ. I hope you're hearing me in your spirits. True godliness is never nor can it ever be about what you or I think we are doing for God. We don't come here to offer our service and our worship because of personal piety and self-righteousness and how wonderful and educated we all are or even we don't come here and offer our word. We come here to serve because of a compulsion that is born out of a recognition for what Jesus has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. The faith that we profess was costly but it was not paid for by you nor me. It cost God everything. And true godliness of which I speak is about realizing that the mercy and the grace that God brought through Jesus Christ offers to us a people most undeserving. But there's a difference between godliness and holiness. Holiness is a term that refers to the condition of something or someone that is set apart as sacred, consecrated, or dedicated. God is holy because he is pure. He is loving. And he is without sin. So God is and always will be holy. However, it is also possible for common objects or people, hear me clearly, church, this is not heresy, to become holy or set apart as they are used for God's purposes. Now, lest you start to think that you are so good, let me make it clear. The sanctuary of this church is holy because it's been set apart for God's purposes. The, the, the organ and the piano, the drums and the microphones are holy because they're set apart for God's purposes. The implements of communion are holy because they are set apart for God's purposes. Are you tracking with me? And yet, in a very practical way, while you and I are sinful by nature and cannot be holy as God is holy, yet, hear me church, yet as faithful believers who have made up in our minds to be in the world but not of the world, we can be holy in the, watch this, in the choices we make. For, 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 for Peter says this. Hear me. Now, it's a thin line. Because what I'm saying is, 
your righteousness and mine is as but filthy rags. So we can never be holy. But Peter says this. Listen carefully to what Peter says. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. Watch this. In all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. In other words, you and I are not holy, but we can have holy conduct in our manner of conversation and speech and the way that we conduct ourselves. Are you hearing me, church? Paul says, listen, I'm, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the church. The gospel is real when you live a life that matches the holiness of God. So if you're feeling like you're nothing, if you're feeling like you are less than, if you feel like you don't worth or matter any much to anybody, Here's what I'm saying. When you choose to serve God and you choose to speak about God and you speak of the mystery of the godliness of God and the holiness of God, you then become the holiness of God. Because you cannot speak about God and it be anything other than holy. I don't know if you hear this. I don't know if you hear this. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we can be holy in our conduct to each other. We can be holy in our business dealings and in our temperament. We can be holy in how we care for our bodies and ourselves. This is about our conduct as believers and we operate with love from a pure heart, serving with a good conscience and with a sincere faith. This is how we are to live, both inside and outside the four walls of the church. I don't know what you're hearing. So when you come through these doors, or when you're asked to serve, as, 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 as Sister Dillard is asking for volunteers to serve, when you come through these doors and you're asked to serve, or even when you just come in and you want to lift your hands and your voices in praise, brothers and sisters, you are to consider it a very great privilege. You are not here because of a pastor or a first lady or a chair pro tem of stewards or trustee boards. You're not here because of a ministry obligation because it's your Sunday to sing or your what. You're not here because of all of those things because you've made a commitment to be on the door or, or what. You're not here because of all of those things. If you think that that's why you're here, it's going to become work. It's going to become a burden. It's going to become heavy. But on the other hand, if you are here because your conscience is rooted in a heart that is filled with gratitude and a faith that sincerely and genuinely loves Jesus Christ, then it mandates that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to a holy God. So holiness is about the nature and character of God, which he exemplifies. 
And godliness is about you trying to emulate the holiness of God. I pray that you're hearing this. Now the truth is, and I'm getting ready to close. Now the truth is, you and I can never perfectly emulate the holiness of God. Let's be clear. God is holy. And so our godliness at best is fallen and broken. And every attempt that we try to reflect our creator, the image of God in which we were created, is faulty and broken. So let's be clear. Even the preacher. This is why so many of us have problems in the church, because we think we have what it takes to reflect a holy God in our unholy flesh. It is impossible. Not because we were bad or even from a lack of trying. I know that you're doing the very best you can to live a holy life acceptable to God. I know that you're trying your best. I know that you're doing everything you can to live a good life. I know that you are. But you will always come up short and disappointed because you cannot do it on your own. As wonderful a pastor as I think I might be, in terms of my preparation for every sermon and all of the things that I try to do as best as I can, it falls woefully short. Because unless it's Jesus doing it, my brothers and my sisters, I will fail you and I will disappoint you. So I always say, look to Jesus. I will always point you to Jesus. I, my only job is to lead you to Jesus. And if I live a life and, I con and conduct myself in a way that lets you say, well, I think pastor is practicing what he preaches, then it's more likely that I can lead you to the master and you are more willing to believe. But because we can never do it on our own, Jesus came and lived the true life of holiness. Watch this, to give you and I a tangible example to emulate. Jesus was and is perfect, and by living the sinless life, he became our example. But Jesus took it a step further, Eve. Mother Andrea, it's one thing for Jesus to walk the earth and to show us how to talk to people, how to love people. It's one thing for Jesus to show us how to deal with challenges that come up in ministry and, and show pastors how they ought to pastor. That's one thing. But Jesus, being God, being so awesome, took it a step further. What do you mean? Jesus was and is perfect. He lived a sinless life, and he was our example. But this is how he took it a step further, and this is the good news. This is the truth that Paul is talking about. This is why Paul gave us the hymn. This is where Paul was going with this. He says, not only did he become our example, but when he died on Calvary's cross and rose again from the grave, what he did in that act was to become our holiness. Let that sink into your spirits. When Jesus walked the earth before he died, he gave us an example of how to live holy. But knowing that we could never achieve that holiness that he had in mind for us, he went to Calvary's cross. He died on that tree. And when he rose again, he became our holiness. He became our holiness. That's the good news. Don't miss it. Jesus lived as our example of holiness. And when he died, he became our holiness. This means... 
Help me, Holy Spirit. This means that as you and I place our faith in him and in his finished work on the cross, that benefit gets imputed to you and to me. It's not anything that we could have worked for or earned, but it was a gift that was freely given because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. That's my point. The mystery that Paul talks about is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. So the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. And it's incumbent upon every single one of us who profess faith in Jesus to support this truth by conducting ourselves with love from a pure heart, serving each other with a good conscience and ministering to all with a sincere faith and being on one accord with one confession, one confession that we all must share, and it's simply this, one God, one faith, one baptism. This is the true measure of godliness. And if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, through us, then we will become credible witnesses. And the church will again regain its rightful place as the place where the holiness of God may not only be found, but also experienced. I pray that this message was sobering. Because we can spend a lot of time talking about a whole lot of other stuff and not realizing that the very thing that God is asking for us to do is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? And our neighbors as ourselves. We say it every Sunday. Why? Because how you conduct yourselves, whether in here or out of here, is either helping the cause of Christ or it's destroying it. Which side are you on? May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. Amen.